We make war that we may live in peace. Aristotle. You want to fight? We'll give you a fight. Welcome to FightCast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, uh, Fight Ficionados. Um I'm, I'm playing with terms for the audience of this show, so expect some more and worse ones. Fight uh, fetishes? Fetishes? That, that, is, that is your term, Kyle, that Fight-ish- is not mine. Fightishes. Ugh. I'll run it through the focus groups and we'll see what they say. Fight uh, friends. <laughs> fight friends. Yeah, fight friends is good. I like, I, like, I like fight friends. Yeah. Um, uh, those dulcet tones you're hearing are those of Kyle Decker. Hi, say uh, say hi, Kyle. Hi, Kyle. God damn it. And uh, Jake Gulliver. Hello. Um, uh, and of course, the lovely Kirsten White is also here. I continue to exist. Yes, you do. Uh, Kyle is uh, a good friend of mine uh, who performs with Fearless Comedy Productions as well as. Uh, Hot Chocolate Media. You can listen to his uh, podcast, The Movie Machine, uh, wherever good podcasts are heard. Also, uh, hotchocolatemedia.net. Yep. Uh, and uh, Jacob Gulliver is also the uh, head of that project. Uh, Jacob Gulliver, uh, we met when we were doing Human Combat Chess, if I believe. That's correct. If I, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Excellent. You and I have both done that for, what, three, four years yep. now? Something like that? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, good times were had and uh, good blows were struck, and you had a sweet katana fight the last time. I did. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was completely blown away that they gave that fight to me yeah. and was delighted to perform it. You yeah, it was it was it was good. It was good. Uh, listeners who weren't at Human Combat Chess uh, 2016, y'all missed out. Uh, well, uh, we're here primarily talking to you, Kyle. Uh, we're we're talking about uh, the United States Marine Corps, the Mac Map system, and the old uh, style of um, uh, unarmed. Would you call it unarmed self defense, or would you call sure, it? Sure. I mean, it's it's it's, it's so. I was in the Marine Corps from 1999-2003. Uh-huh. The MacMac program was instituted in 2001 by uh, uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General James Jones, uh-huh. who was the Commandant when I was in the Marine Corps. It basically, it went. I mean, there was, when I was in basic training in 1999, there was plenty of hand-to-hand combat training, and uh-huh. then in the further advanced infantry training that I wasn't infantryman, but every Marine's a rifleman, so if you're not an infantry person, you still have a... Advanced twenty one long twenty one day long infantry training school as well where we got more hand to hand combat training there but the whole day of Mac Mac was to kind of more focus it and it was like anything's a weapon your fist your bayonet mm-hmm. the the stock of your uh, M sixteen your helmet your boots whatever so it was kind yeah. of like turning your whole the idea was to turn the whole body into a weapon and also instill some of like warrior culture mentality and some mental training with it. Gotcha. But they also made it very organized and introduced a belt system based on hours of training. Training was certified. Yeah. Uh, trainers and everything. A lot of it was based, a lot of it has its roots. A lot of Marine Corps uh, hand-to-hand combat training has its uh, background in judo. Yep. Because the first official program in the 60s and 70s was started by a couple higher-up Marines who at the judo club at Marine Corps uh, Recruit Depot San Diego. Yep. So there's a lot of throws, a lot of disarms, a lot of quick punches, things that are actually pretty efficient in combat. You don't necessarily have time for your super fancy, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, crazy martial arts. You literally get in, disarm the enemy, take them out, move on to the next enemy as fast as possible. Excellent, excellent. Uh, going backward in time just a little bit, uh, for our listeners who are not necessarily familiar with the legendary kind of training regimen that the United States Marine Corps goes through, uh, take us a little bit back. Uh, what What is the journey you take through uh, your basic uh, Marine Corps boot camp? And, uh, where, where did you go to Marine Corps boot camp? Sure. Um, so there's two recruit depots in the United States. There's Marine Corps... Recruit Depot San Diego, mm-hmm. and then Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island, South Carolina. Yep. I went to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, so mm-hmm. we're all affectionately known as Hollywood Marines. Okay, out there, uh, where we it's uh, when I was in, I think it still is, is twelve weeks of training. It's yep. basically eight weeks on at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, where you're learning close order drill, you're doing obstacle courses, you're doing some hand to hand combat training, you're doing physical training. Lots of classroom education from everything on how to take care of an M16 to the ranks of the various branches of the military mm-hmm. to chemical warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you did the gas chamber then. <laughs> we did, yes. We did go through the, the – well, actually, that wasn't at recruit, re, Marine Recruit Deal with San Diego. Then they, you go, they call it going up north. So okay. you go up north on I-5 a little bit to uh, Camp Pendleton, California, which okay. is just north in Orange County, where they have a Recruit Depot section on – you know. On the big, kind of you know, in the middle, the in the middle of, the of desert. It's not yeah. in the middle of like when you're at Recruit Depot San Diego. You're sitting there doing push-ups all in sand. You're right next to the harbor and the airport, so planes are taking off. You can sign and see beyond the wall parts of downtown, and yeah. you see million-dollar homes in the hills around you. So it's really a cool, weird. You're doing this like tough military stuff in this like multi-million dollar neighborhood hmm. but you also can't do things like shoot M16s in a neighborhood like that so you go yeah. north to Camp Pendleton uh, four days and that's where you do your rifle qualification your like field movements where you, you call it humping which is hiking with full gear and military mm-hmm. movements learn ambushes do live fire exercises intense bayonet training yeah like you do some you do a lot of pugil sticks at yep. Recruit Depot San Diego, which simulates bayonet fighting. It's basically two padded sticks on either side. You wear yeah. some football gear, and you just you know you they you, know, you go until they the the, the drill instructor refereeing says you have a killing blow, yeah. which is a butt stock of the face or or a bayonet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do some more intense uh, pugil stick training at Camp Pendleton, like over water, you know, a bridge over water and in, in like a bunker system. Oh, stuff. so like Robin Hood at Renaissance kind of, Festival. <laughs> a little bit. But then you also have live fire training, uh, simulated, you know, crawling through barbed wire while simulated machine guns are shooting over you and uh-huh. shells and flares, night fire exercises, all that kind of stuff is done at Camp Pendleton. Then you return to Camp Pendleton, you graduate, and then you move on. Um, and then the, the next thing you do, if it depends on if you are a combat marine, an infantryman, or a non-combat marine, which I was. So the combat marines then go to infantry school. Mm-hmm. It's intense. Some of the best infantry training in the world. And then the regular non-combat Marines go to, they call it MCT, Marine Combat Training, yeah. which is 21 days, and you're doing, it's also at Camp Pendleton. You're doing more field exercises. Um, you're learning how to fire the more heavy-duty squad weapons, the 240 Golf, the 249 Saw, the Mark 19, the AT-4. Mm-hmm. You know, two the fun stuff. So the grenade launchers, all that kind of stuff. You at least get a working knowledge of those things, mm-hmm. and you learn things about Squad tactics, how to assault a hill, how to move forward with a fire team to where one only one person moves forward while the rest of the fire team is laying down fire. All that kind of kind small of unit basic, tactics, yeah. small unit tactics and the thing that kind of makes up how the Marine Corps fights worse. Yeah. Uh, 
and there's more. We learn how to clear a minefield. That's you know not oh. terrifying at all. Um, <laughs> because even training, they're just little plastic things in the ground. But they're like, so here's a plastic stick. So lay on your belly and start sticking the little plastic stick gently in the sand in front of you. You so, literally learn. Okay, so there's a mine here. Yep. Here's how you poke mine. it with a stick. Yeah, in the right theoretically, way. poking with a stick won't set it off because you go up the side. It only works on the top. Yeah, yeah. This true, is how true. you hold it and everything like that. that like, I bet that doesn't stop it from being terrifying, though. No, no even any of those like like hockey pucks are simulated. Though. Oh yeah, we yeah. learn how to set up claymores, that kind of stuff. So that's MCT, and then you go on whatever your specialization is, mechanic or. Gotcha. I was a legal clerk, so I went and learned how to learn the uniform code of military justice and stuff after that, and then you arrive at the fleet. Marine Force. Yep. FMF, where you get assigned your unit, and that's what you do, and you'll always do main, maintenance training and other training beyond that. Excellent. And when I was in the Fleet Marine Force is when they instituted the the uh, Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. Excellent. And so I, I got my uh, – I didn't actually – so the one requirement is it's really intense training. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And you have to be at least one year separated from a shoulder injury to do it. And I, when the oh. program was initiated, I had just had shoulder surgery. I see. <laughs> so I wasn't able to participate in it before I got out of the Marine Corps. But it's basically you got various levels. I think it starts with a tan belt. Like I swear the webbing. And various levels of training. And I think it's for the first level, you need 20 hours of training. For the next level, 25, then 25. And when you reach the black belt, I think there's six degrees of black belt. And for yeah. every degree, you need 40 hours of supervised training. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, go, going back just a little bit again, uh, the, the the bayonet training is is the, the, the level of focus on the bayonet is very interesting to me. Uh, yeah. Seeing as, you know, because we're, we're post-Cold War. We're still, you know, in small unit tactics. It seems like nowadays, now more than ever, you're least you're less likely to ever get into a bayonet confrontation. But yet, there seems to be a focus on that. Do you think that that is more kind of like a mental thing, I, or or do they really expect to get into close quarter well, with I, the enemy in 21st century combat? I think a big part of it. So when we're doing the training, like with each blow, you're supposed to like scream and make a war cry and all. So yeah. I think a big part of it is to psychologically like almost, and you're attacking dummies. Yep. So it's kind of dehumanize who you're attacking and just part of that kind of psychological breaking you down, make you realize you're being made into a weapon. Uh-huh. I think that's a big part of it. And you're also being made part of a team. Like everyone uh-huh. has to do this thing. I think that's a big part of it. Uh-huh. And who knows, you know, every time they say we won't need these weapons anymore, they still come up in the battlefield being necessary. I mean, they when the F-4 Phantom first came out in Vietnam, they didn't put machine guns or cannons on it for yep. dogfighting they only put missiles because they figure with jets machine guns on jets are obsolete because bullets don't travel fast enough yep. and they turned out that the MiG-17s that still had the 20 millimeter cannons were really good at dogfighting and the missiles weren't as reliable so they went back and added cannons to them so it's one of those I see I mean as far as you look in, in battle battle has always been won by infantry infantry people on the ground Yeah. It, their kit has changed over the year, but they've always basically carried 100 pounds of equipment, no matter if it was a combination of arms, uh, armor and swords and spears and stuff. And now yeah. it's a combination of body armor, helmet, lots of ammunition. Mm-hmm. You know, they realize that water and food is one of the main things. So you're carrying a lot of your own, you know, supplies like that. Yeah. The standard kit from, from like, say, compare a renaissance pikeman, yep. you know, in the 15th century to an infantryman today, they're carrying about the same weight of equipment and some of the similar things it's just the technology has advanced some so i don't yeah. i think a knife will always be 
mm-hmm. a part of any infantry person's loadout. Yeah. And if you can stick that knife on the end of a long stick and make it a yeah. better sticky, pointy thing, I think there will always be a use for it no yeah. matter how advanced things be. Yeah, my, yeah. My, 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 my second episode talks about the spear and how like it's never really gone away. It's just kind of shifted forms. Um, it, you know... It is always interesting how we we're always trying to learn how to fight the next war, um, but we never want to forget how we fought the ones previous, at least to a certain degree. And one of the best examples of this I can think of is World War One, uh, another famous you know conflict that Marines took part in, you know, in Bella Wood especially. Well, that's not, World that's War like, One, Bella Wood, and World War Two. They're exclusively in the Pacific. Oh yeah, did I say World War Two? You might have okay, well, uh, but but we'll no, fix it in post. It, but yeah, exactly. But uh, uh, are you kidding? I don't edit this. <laughs> uh, but but World War One, uh, no, is very interesting to me because you had the technology to the point where people are farther apart from each other, and we're just lobbing artillery shells at each other by the literal thousands. And you'd think that no, nobody's going to come into close contact anymore. And the battles of the frontiers, they found that out. You know, the bayonet charges—they just never worked. They just, you know, they were hit by artillery, they were hit by the new machine guns and everything, by you know, incredibly accurate bolt-action rifle fire, which is another thing the Marines uh, were uh, known for uh, during that time. So y- y- you'd think that okay, this is going to be a conflict that is going to be sort of sterile almost. We're just going to be lobbing these incredibly advanced armaments at each other. We're never going to come in contact. But, of course, once the trench warfare started up, you had people kind of going backwards in time a couple of centuries. You had them making maces. You had them making uh, axes. You had uh, the knives and knuckles. knives they had. Oh, God, the sharpened um, spade, you know? It's just... Uh, well, yeah, an entrenching tool, an e-tool, actually yeah. got some training on how various ways to use it as well oh, yeah? in the Marine Corps. Interesting. Um, one of my favorite... I always I was a judge advocate, general clerk. Mm-hmm. I remember doing a specific court-martial, and there's a... Uh, Sergeant Major, who had been in the Marine Corps, I think, for 42 years, wow. that was coming as a character witness. So this was 1999, so he yeah. stretches back to Vietnam Okay. at this point. And I'm going through his service jacket, because he's a character witness. He's just, you know, he's not involved with the crime. He's a character wasn't the person, and, like, they found the page with confirmed kills. And this man has, like, 17 confirmed kills, and, like, a purple heart, and all kinds of stuff. But one of his confirmed kills was with an entrenching tool. <laughs> like, most of them was, like, M16, you know, uh, M16 grenade, whatever. Entrenching tool. I'm not going to mess with this man whatsoever. <laughs> He's killed another human being with a shovel. Like, <laughs> but you, the, the entrenching tools, because they have the angled handles, you can actually angle it and lock it in place so it's almost like an adze or an axe and you can just get that levered power and it comes to an angle so if you hit someone right with that angle it's just gonna sever a spine or cleave into someone's skull or someone uh, so, this is so going it, under things I'm filing to know for the next zombie. So I could see so. like in World War One, you know, sharpening the edge of your spade and mm-hmm. then just having you know it's a lever with a sharpie thing yep. at the end. You basically make a um, ha- multi-use hatchet. Well, and the, in World War One, the Germans also had, you know, their stormtroopers. They would wear the big great coats that had metal plates in it for armor, and they carry multiple knives and grenades and, yep. you know, maybe, a, you know, and handguns. And yep. they would just go in the trenches with their handguns. Oh, my revolvers are empty. Drop them, switch to knives <laughs> or shovels. <laughs> it's like Blackbeard. Yeah. You know, you're carrying... And they usually wore gas masks, too, and it would, they would follow in after a gas attack. And they go in these guys who are just like keeling over and just like beat them in the head with Jesus. brass knuckles or something. It was intense. I, 
Um, y- you and have do to, you imagine the look of a guy in an armored greatcoat with a gas mask with one of the pointed German helmets on it just coming at you with a pair of knives? Terrifying. That's terrifying. While you're choking yeah. on chlorine gas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a reason people had nightmares and ruined a whole generation in World War One. Oh, absolutely. So. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a historical estuary where, you know, you, you have this... Everything we're, we're we're more enlightened now. Technology is to the point where you know we don't have to have this long drawn out you know horrific slaughter like you know the people in ancient times used to have. But it turns out no, that never really goes away. Well, you know? it actually gets more. We get better. We got better at killing people. Yeah, one of the Americans used to great effect in trench warfare was the pump action shotgun. Yep, uh, the to, gun, to the yeah. point to where the Germans said if they caught a U.S. soldier with them, they'd. They'd execute them on site. Oh. There's no reports of that actually happening. But if you, because you, they put the tubes and hold eight buckshot rounds, you can yeah. just sit there and clear a trench and reload before yep. you go around the next corner. And, yeah. Because you just aim it down the trench and it just hits everything with the buckshot. And it was very terrifying. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, one other thing about World War One is uh, where the Marines got one of their famous nicknames, uh, Devil Dogs. Teufelhunden. Teufelhunden, yes. <laughs> so. Uh, I, I that I could I could go on and uh, I, I'm I'm absolutely certain I'm gonna have a uh, World War One uh, melee weapons episode coming up. Uh, I cannot. A wait lot for of that those one. knives and stuff like the ones that had the triangle blades, so yep. the wound would. They actually put there's a whole section on like certain kind of knives yep. in the Geneva Convention because of World War One. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and it's, it's, speaking of dimes, uh, the Marine K bar is uh, also still, very famous. Yeah, it, it's been around since World War since the 1930s. So they they've modified it. The traditional one has a leather handle and everything. Yeah, but now they they're, they're still playing Marines to carry a more tactical version of it. And yeah, it was uh, it's a cool knife. It's pretty mean looking. Excellent. Like half Rambo's knife, half Bowie knife kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to another guy uh, who I worked with uh, in the security company who was also a Marine and uh, talking about uh, when they did SEER training, uh, the survival escape (laughs) resistance, survival evade resistance escape uh, training that they do uh, where you kind of are allowed to take like one knife of your choice. Uh, At least that's the way he described it. And uh, one person took uh, a Marine K-Bar with them and, you know, they were just almost laughed at by their drill instructor because, you know, you're taking a fighting knife out into a survival situation. And, you know, there's a reason that the Marine K-Bar is uh, flexy and um, you're you're using the wrong tool for the job. You don't use that. I bring a Leatherman in that situation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I, I like the Kukri, personally. Um, That's served me pretty well uh, so far. Mm -hmm. But uh, so uh, going back to your time uh, in... uh, What was it like being in the Marine Corps when 9-11 happened? Because I, mean, I imagine that th- this was a turning point for everything about our country, uh, the, the armed forces especially. Sure. It was It was honestly a bit surreal because honestly, I was... I, I had a, essentially a desk job yeah. on an air base. The air bases are a little less intense than, say, an infantry base in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, so I had a fairly like, comfortable life for a lower enlisted person in the Marine Corps. I would show up to my shop at, you know, seven thirty eight zero seven thirty to zero eight hundred or sometime yeah. and leave every day around, you know, sixteen thirty or four thirty if you will, or yeah. five o'clock. Yeah. And usually, you know, you'd go work out in the gym in the morning, work out in the afternoon, go eat at the chow hall, then you play on base softball teams and generally have fine occasionally do field exercises and stuff. It was pretty laid back. 
I actually remember the morning of September 11th, like I'm sure most people were. I was my morning routine. I'd, I'd go work out and shit, shower, shave, as they call it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I was getting ready. I was putting my uniform on. I'm watching ESPN at the time because that was my right. habit. And they're, they're speculating Michael Jordan was contemplating a comeback at that time with the Washington Wizards. And so I hear a knock. With a, you have the shared bathrooms with your, your barracks, with, with your your suite mate. Yeah. And one of my, uh, my suite mate, who was a Navy corpsman, is like, hey, are you watching the news. I'm like, yeah, Michael Jordan is contemplating a comeback. He's like, no, no, no. Turn on the news. And that's when I first turned it on. I'm like, is this like a promotional thing for an action movie or something? This uh, can't yeah. be real. And then the whole time, so the base went on lockdown, extreme security. Yep. Like our, our legal office, which was open to the public because we do notarizations and paperwork for service members, retirees, their family members, like we saw, like retirees weren't allowed on, like no one but active duty personnel and their direct family were left on base. Yeah, immediate security went up. They started uh, increasing security by. I even did a small security detail for like a month, where I helped out the MPs do yeah. perimeters around the bases because they ramped up security and everything. It was much. Everything was much more serious. And then, for me personally, the big thing I did because we knew people would start deploying first to Afghanistan and later to. Uh, Iraq was I prepared wills and powers of attorney for uh, oh for Marines deploying. So we did a lot, especially like the third shift of the Harrier squadrons that you know repair ships twenty or repair planes twenty four seven. We would go in at three in the morning and bring the paperwork and forms, and we'd fill out and they'd come in and we'd sign and notarize their wills and powers of attorney, which is an important thing when you're going off to another country and could die. And actually. Yeah. The most surreal moment for me, the very first casualty, U.S. casualty of the Iraq War, which was a helicopter pilot of a helicopter that crashed, I wrote and witnessed his will. Whoa. And it was very, like, when I saw his name go up on CNN, I'm like, why is that name very familiar? And I went into our files where we have all our copies. I'm oh. like, wow, that's, like, I remember talking to this person, and this person has a wife and children and everything, and that's when war became very, very real to me. Yeah. Um, because I had literally signed and written and witnessed the will of the first casualty of that, I the mean, Iraq war. When you, when you went to the military, you think, you know, it probably is in the back of your mind that you could participate in an event that is, you know, historical, you know, that could Even have... if you're just doing the paperwork for it. But still, you know... Um, you'll have to remind me now. Uh, MacMap was instituted with this pre or post. Was it pre or post nine eleven? I think it was around the same time. Okay. I don't, I don't think one instigated the other. I just think they're, yeah. you know, like. Was it a part of a general shift in attitude in the Marine Corps at the time, I, or was they it? Wanted, I think there there was definitely a focus of more like immediate combat readiness. Yeah. Because another shift that happened around the same time was the change in the Marine Corps <coughs> uniform. Okay. They're doing a big sell. When yeah. I started, came in, they still had the old school woodland camouflage that yeah. you're familiar with from like uh, Heart, uh, great Marine Corps movie, Clint yep. Eastwood, you know, Heartbreak Ridge. Yep. So those very style uniforms and everything. I was still wearing that style uniform when I was in basic training and everything. Okay. We were still ironing it and starching it. So when you're on garrison, you had these nice sharp creases and everything. And you had spit shine boots, black leather boots and everything that vaguely so like the Vietnam era style. Okay. They call them jump boots yeah. and everything. And then they went to the ship like, those aren't good for combat. You don't spend time ironing your uniform for combat. You put yeah. it on. So I switched the the digital 
digital camouflage pattern that yeah. is now ubiquitous with U.S. military and everything. Yeah. I was in from the transition to that, and they have, like, the brushed leather combat boots that you don't have to polish and also have a lighter infrared signature yeah. on night vision dogs. Oh, I didn't and other know practical that. things. Because when you have spit shine boots, they reflect light and everything more, so they can really glow. If you have really well-polished boots in combat zone and <laughs> your opponent has night vision, they can see your boots better. Huh, I never thought about brush, that. brush suede leather boots, they have a lower, like, I don't ah. know if it's infrared, but they don't show up on night vision as well. Okay. Um, so things like that. And then those, <clears throat> the, the digital camouflage uh, uniforms also have... Uh, Pockets put in places that keep in mind where you're wearing modern body armor. Okay. So there's places you can keep a compass and a map and a pen light and the things you need available, but you don't want it underneath the yeah. pockets of your body armor necessarily. You need to stay protected. There's yeah. interior pouches inside to put padded knee inserts inside your camouflage utility and elbow pads inside it. And the new uniforms are designed in that mind. They also are designed... Never to be like to be washed and keep a nice appearance, kind of a wrinkle free and everything. Yeah. Very much a move towards like more immediate combat readiness and less of the, uh, you know, fold all your shirts in three inch squares and make them look perfect. The other things in the peacetime military is like this is how you keep military discipline. Yeah. Now that we've been in a perpetual state in fifteen years of war, it's more about be ready to fight. I see. Okay. And, that, and yeah. I was in when that initial kind of change happened it was uh, i was in the military during that transition what was it jarring for you did you have trouble adjusting it was different like it was you know a partner was like am i gonna go off to fight soon you'd have certain things like we could go off and fight any second you gotta take this more seriously you know there's that kind of attitude and everything and i wasn't taking it that seriously because i was a 20 21 year old kid i'm like i've already gotten plenty of training i'll be ready when it comes to me yeah and it's like you know, it was very much, yeah. and I think the modern military is a lot more, they're on edge more, I think, more intense. I see. For lack of a better term, more patriotic, or like, how dare you question what we're doing? We're fighting a war here, mm-hmm. which, you know, 15 nonstop years of war will do that to any branch of the military. That 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 is true. That is true. You know, um, you know war has a way of becoming self-perpetuating, um, you know, when the conditions are right, and unfortunately, I think... The conditions are right, but that's a that's as much as I'm going to inject my own opinion into the in, into the matter. But a lot it, of it's my own opinion and speculation as well. Oh, yeah. I was a lower enlisted person for four years, and I got out and took the college money and ran. Yeah, because when I got out in 2003, there was two kinds of Marines. Those were ones that had been to Iraq and Afghanistan, and those who were going. Yeah, I see. Um, and I yeah. I luckily didn't have to go, and I thought I'd keep it that way, take my honorable discharge, and yeah. leave. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, to wrap up here, uh, what's your what's your favorite uh, either personal anecdote about your time in the Marines, or what's your favorite uh, kind of the, the the Marines are different from a lot of uh, from the other branches of the military in that they have a mythos. You know, they have a very I'd say very carefully constructed mythos. It's a gun club. Them. You know, it's a gun club. Yeah. It's the best way to describe it with secret handshakes and all that. You know, yeah. you, should, you should tell the, uh, the story about the car door. Oh, well, off-duty off shenanigans? Yeah, okay. All right, so that's, that's my story. favorite story. So, <laughs> so I was stationed at Marine Corps Air Station Yuma, Arizona, which is in the middle of nowhere, desert. Yeah. There's not a whole lot to do, so we both mostly played softball year-round, worked out, and drank, and drank heavily. Uh, but it was also on the, the Mexican border, basically. Okay. So this was pre-September 11th when some of the security stuff wasn't. So uh, I had recently... Uh, 
you could drink at 18 in Mexico, so there's a reason to go. So okay. we're all under 21. So we get permission to, there's four of us, we found out there was a tequila distillery. It was just a couple hour drive, two or three hour drive from the base in Mexico. Okay. Well, it's sweet. So we went and we got a tour of the distillery and everything, and then we were able to buy all their weird varieties of, or all their different varieties of tequila off the line. Love it. So we got, you know, so when we sighted, driving back along this road in the middle of, you know, the southwest desert. And we just stop on this really nice vista that has kind of an area you could pull off. And we're like, let's watch the sunset and open up one of these bottles and just enjoy the sunset. So the four of us open up this bottle of tequila and pass it around and watch the sunset. And then I wake up the next morning and I just hear the boom, boom, boom of my car door because we had driven my car. Because it was open and my legs were my legs and knees were on the front seat and I was like <laughs> face down, ass up <laughs> on the ground with no shirt on, <laughs> like in the car. And I don't know why. Another one of my friends was just in the back seat, sprawled out, wearing another one of my friend's pants, oh, not his own pants, <laughs> but another one you of my friends. You could visually pants. identify that they and were then not the his third pants. friend was on a rock. Completely naked. We couldn't find his clothes. We think he threw them off the cliff. Just laying out there in the sunset, waking up, going, where are my clothes? And I don't remember the third one. He was just in the front seat, passed out. And we're like, what the hell? Like, we've drank tequila before. So we kept the bottle clean and everything. None of, we're all, we're four white guys. Didn't speak a lick of Spanish. So we get back. Um... We get our. We have to smuggle our tequila in because we're underage and everything. We do because we have the military sticker. The border patrol at times come on through for white men with a military sticker. Yep. Uh, <laughs> okay. Privilege has its benefits. Oh uh, yeah, it turns uh, out. So we get home and then we show one of our Mexican speaking or Mexican Spanish speaking. He's a, a Mexican American Marine. The bottle. He's like, yeah. <laughs> This has peyote in it. <laughs> it was peyote infused tequila. Oh my god, so, they make that? Yes. Yeah, so, well, you can't buy it in the United States, but of you can apparently not. get it in Mexico. And they had no gumption. Their, their sampler pack of tequila just happened to have one of these in there. And we just picked it because it had a nice bottle. We couldn't read anything on there. It was like, so tequila, which already has hallucinatory effects, minor, with, and it was infused with peyote. So apparently we didn't realize that we were tripping balls when we were out there. And luckily we didn't have any like drug tests or anything anytime soon after that. Because oh. it was completely unintended. So we saved the bottle in case something happened. I was like, okay, here's our passes. We were legally you know, able to drink there. We did. We're dumb because we don't know how to read Spanish. <laughs> we we're all ready for defense in case we got a, a positive. Covering your ass is like, whoa. But yeah, so I don't exactly remember what happened that night. But multiple articles of clothing missing from four dudes. Was that awkward to explain when you got back to base at um, all? Mostly kept it to ourselves. <laughs> uh, we joked around. Now it's just a great story. Oh, yeah. But it's literally just, I remember watching the sunset drinking and then waking up to the chime of my door. Like everything in between, no memory of whatsoever. Oh, man. I might either. have talked to a coyote. I don't know. <laughs> like. <laughs> Some, somewhere there's a coyote going, I wonder when Kyle's going to visit again. Yeah. He's a great dude. Most of my great Marine Corps stories involve alcohol of some sort. So, Well, you know, I think the best stories in general just do. Uh, I mean, there, there's always going to be uh, there's always gonna be good stories that have alcohol as a component to them just because 
it's fun. And it turns out uh, the things that your friends do while under the influence is funny. Um, so yeah, uh, any other any other remarks you want to like, any you know lesser known bits of bits of trivia that people might be surprised to learn about uh, like your your uh, the combat training in in the Marine Corps? I don't know. I didn't get that much combat training. Like I said I yeah. wrote court martial charges for most of my time in. Gotcha. Uh, but one thing you'll notice if anytime you meet a Marine, and I don't know if this is true, the other branches of the service yep. they do so much close order drill and basic training, which is marching, and all yep. marching starts with the left foot. Yeah. Find two Marines of any age. Watch them start walking. They'll always start walking with their left foot. Huh. That's why we find some kinds of dancing hard. Any dancing requires starting with your right foot. It's nigh impossible to deprogram your brain. Huh. So if dancing starts with their left foot, we can usually figure it out. Okay. It starts with the right foot. We're just I was about to say, you heard it here, folks. Marines can't dance. Kyle Decker no, says No, they so. can dance. Any <laughs> dancer requires... At least Kyle the left foot. Yeah. I, I, Kyle I, can't dance. I generally can't dance either. That's acceptable. Although I've seen you at the Renaissance Festival. You get down sometimes. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much, uh, everybody. This has been an extremely uh, enlightening uh, uh, episode uh, of Fightcast. Uh, um, I, I learned a couple of things. I wanted to talk to you, especially because you were there at a very pivotal transition point um, in you know the attitude and the training of the military and everything. So thank you so much for talking to me about that. And uh, yeah, uh, you can hear uh, the Movie Machine podcast featuring Kyle Decker and Jacob Gulliver on Hot Chocolate Media. Like I said, wherever fine podcasts can yeah. be heard. Hot Chocolate Media on that Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Excellent, so, excellent. Or Google Music, whatever Google's streaming yeah. service. You got? Uh, you guys got any other uh, exciting projects coming up you'd like to plug? Uh, none. We're hoping to make a season two of Super Academy or a web series. Oh yeah! If you haven't seen Super Academy, go on to the Escapist. Uh, there's actually lots of stage combat in that. Yep. We have lots of fighting in that. Uh, where we, Jake and I, like putting stage combat in our productions. Uh, so we're hoping to do another season or at least another episode or two of Super Academy. Lovely. And whatever we make, there'll be guaranteed to be some stage combat in it. Well, you awesome. you guys will have to come back and do an episode on that for me. You know, uh, over Skype maybe, but yeah. Uh, Kirsten, you got anything to add? Uh, nothing really to plug. Excellent, excellent. Uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you might uh, have a couple of weeks gap in this as we're going to be getting acclimatized to our new home in Seattle. Uh, we will also get a physical website back up and running just as soon as we figure out how to do that and not get hacked this time. But uh, in the meantime, you can find every episode I've done of Fightcast at soundcloud.com slash fightcastpodcast. Uh, stay well, everyone. Uh, look out for yourselves and each other. Take care. Go above and beyond and follow us at Fightcast Podcast and check out our blog and new episodes at fightcastpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer.